Okay, so um, I'd like to go now. So this next segment of the course, we, I think maybe you can maybe probably maybe appreciate a little bit better this triangle that I had on before, where I was talking about how what biochemists did was they tended to break cells open and look at the component parts and. There are other things in there than proteins, but an awful lot of stuff having to do with function is proteins. And what uh, geneticists, the, science, the discipline of genetics would do, which made mutants of living organisms and then looked at what, how function was affected by mutating uh, individual genes, how those were both very powerful approaches. Genetics told you what was really important and the biochemistry told you how it worked at a, at a molecular level. But the real problem was knowing whether this thing you had doing something in the test tube was actually the one that did it in life. And I think I told you when Arthur Kornberg isolated the very first DNA polymerase that was able to copy DNA, and he got a Nobel Prize, and it was the first enzyme that could copy DNA, and then John Cairns made a mutant that was lacking the enzyme, and the organism was still alive. So therefore, it couldn't have been the DNA polymerase that was copying the chromosome. It actually turned out to be a DNA repair enzyme. So if you can actually unite genetics and biochemistry, if you can take a mutant that's broken in a function and you found your protein was missing or vice versa, then you had a very, very powerful insight because you connect your knowledge of what was physiologically important to the biochemistry that you were doing. But it was really, really hard for years, and only in very rare occasions did some geneticist have a mutant that suggested so strongly that some biochemist would look, or some biochemist would have such a powerful result that they'd talk to a geneticist and see if anybody had found the result. And the power of recombinant DNA, although it started a biotech industry and it made possible the sequencing of the genome, there's another other level up one higher of conceptual understanding, and what it did was it let you go back and forth between here and here. You wouldn't have any problem now if I gave you the sequence of a gene. You could order it. You could have it synthesized. You could stick it into a cell and make massive amounts of the protein, and you purify it 20-fold, and it would be pure. Whereas before, you might have had to purify it 15,000-fold out of 1,000 grams of cells, and you would have had to have been a very good biochemist with 15 steps in order to purify it. So. You can go from the sequence of the gene to the protein, or if we got a protein and we wanted to know its gene, we just sequence a bit of the protein, use that genetic code, work ourselves backwards to some possible sequences, then go looking for those sequences and, and uh, find the gene. And so what recombinant DNA allows us to do is close that loop. You can go from genetics to biochemistry back and forth. And now everybody does everything instead of it being isolated disciplines, which it was when I entered the field. So, but all of, so all of this stuff depended on the, the development to, to clone particular pieces of DNA. And I want to make clear right at the beginning, there's a couple of uses of cloning that are in popular usage right now. What we're talking about in this lecture is cloning a piece of DNA. What that means is I'm going to take a particular segment of DNA, say cut it here and cut it there, and I'm going to take that piece and I'm going to do something to it that lets me amplify it and make many, many copies of that piece of DNA. And cloning of anything else, you make a whole lot of copies. So that's one word, use of the word cloning. The other 
use, which you see in the popular press all the time, is cloning an individual. The thought being there, you take the nucleus or from, uh, from a cell of the individual, you put that nucleus into an egg that didn't have, that had its own nucleus removed, and now you hope what you get out of that is uh, a, uh, an, in, uh, an organism that has all the same genetic content as the, as the starting individual. And in fact, although it sounds very good in paper, as you're probably beginning to see, it's not the panacea that people thought it was or that you know, we'd have to worry that all of, in 10 years, all of my MIT students would be clones of the brightest person in the class or anything like that because other stuff happens. You wouldn't get to, to um, unless you go on to advanced biology courses, but there are modifications of DNA. There's all sorts of stuff that happens to it so that it's not identical. And uh, so many of these cloned organisms, like Dolly, the sheep that was famous, died early with, her, I forget, arthritis and things. So there are a lot of problems on that score. But that's the other use of the word cloning, and that's not what I'm these next three lectures, we're talking about cloning a piece of DNA. And that was the big problem uh, that faced the field. Certainly when I was an undergrad and even when I was a grad student, I was trying to interest in synthesizing pieces of DNA. And it was one of those things that people said, why are you doing it? Well, because you could try to do it. What if you got a piece of DNA, like Gobind Karana, who's my colleague who got the Nobel Prize for synthesizing the first gene, he synthesized that it was a tRNA gene and it was 128 nucleotides, base pairs long or something. He'd synthesized it. He'd shown you could do it, but you couldn't do anything with it. And there were sort of two big problems. One was the fact that this DNA, although it's not a monotonous tetranucleotide, <laughs> it's pretty hard to tell. I mean, this is, each one of these things is a base pair, and human DNA has three billion of those. And the bit down here doesn't look very different than the bit up there, and certainly wouldn't look very different than the bit of DNA that's two billion base pairs over on the other side of campus or something. So there was no way to take DNA and cut it reproducibly so you could get fragments. What you could see from first principles was what you would need was magic scissors. And what, what would the scissors look like? Well, there would have to be scissors that could read a sequence because there's nothing else different. It, you know it's a regular, back, regular backbone and it's only four nucleotides. So if you wanted to cut DNA in particular places, you had to have scissors that could see a sequence. And furthermore, you can see they, they couldn't just look at, <laughs> they're the hydrogen bonding parts of A and T or G and C because those are stuck together. They're in the middle of the DNA. So you'd need scissors that could somehow find a sequence and make a cut. And those were found, and I'm going to tell you about those. They're called restriction enzymes. So that was part of the, the thing. The other thing was, let's imagine that I could cut out this fragment. And I gave it to you. And I said, great, now I've got it. Would you make me a lot of copies of this DNA? Could you do that? <laughs> if I just, let's say, you know, how to you know how to transform the principle we saw back with Avery. We could take naked DNA and put this fragment into a cell, would it replicate? What do you think? Anybody remember? 
We talked about, no, okay. We talked about some other languages, right? But one of the things that's in the DNA is uh, the genetic code with all the genes, and we can find the reading frame. Remember when we talked about an origin of replication? And I said that was sort of a, a one word, at least for E. coli, there's one origin in eukaryotes. There's origins are spaced out along the DNA, and that's every time you have a round of replication, it starts at one of those origins and then goes. So the chances of that this piece of DNA, by chance, is going to have an origin is pretty small. So if I put it into an organism, it's going to sit there. If you're, you're lucky, you may get degraded because it's got end open, just blunt ends. Or even if I made it into a circle, it probably wouldn't replicate because it probably doesn't have the word in the DNA that says start a round of DNA replication. So the other overarching principle of DNA replication is you somehow have to take the fragment of DNA that you're looking at and you have to attach it to an origin of replication. Now, if you have an origin of replication and you have a fragment of DNA and you put it in the cell, now you'll get a lot of copies of that piece of DNA. So that's what recombinant DNA is all about in a really, really simple form. I'm just going to take you now into increasing sort of levels of, of detail. So let me first give you uh, just sort of a really broad view of this cloning, and then we'll sort of start to, to dive in, and then to dive into some of the fancier techniques that have come out of this. We'll talk about DNA sequencing and PCR and stuff in the next, uh, in the next lecture. So the first thing, the first principle here is to cut the DNA with and, and I know you may think this is sort of baby talk, but this is how, I think, if you really think about um, this stuff, this is what it really is. These are, with sequence-specific molecular scissors, these have the rather odd name. They're called restriction enzymes. I don't know if any of you know why they're called restriction enzymes, although I'm sure that some of you have, have used them in Europe to cut up pieces of DNA. But what that does is it, it, these are enzymes, as I'll tell you, that recognize a particular sequence, and they always cut at that sequence. So the, the value of that is you can reproducibly cut DNA at exactly the same spot, and the spots are, are specified by whatever sequence that particular pair of scissors knows how to read. Then the next thing we have to do is we need to join the piece of DNA to an origin of replication. So the thing that carries the origin of replication is called a vector. And usually, not always, these are circles. We'll consider one that grows, the ones that grow in E. coli are most of the time, or in bacteria, are mostly circles, and they're the ones that are broadly used for most cloning, so we'll talk about those. So they have on what makes a vector, what it has to have is an origin of DNA replication. And they usually have something else. We, would call, we could call it a selectable marker. But something like a drug resistance. If any of you have done cloning in a Europe, usually it's something like ampicillin, a gene for making the cell ampicillin resistant or tetracycline resistant, some antibiotic that would normally kill the cell. So you can tell, does a cell have that vector or not? because the cell is either ampicillin 
starts at ampicillin sensitive, it acquires the, the vector that's replicating, it also acquires the gene that gives it the drug resistance. But if we're going to cut that, uh, if we're going to join a piece of DNA to that, we can't join it to a circle without breaking it. So we need to cut the We cut the vector at a unique site and we would use a restriction enzyme for that and you can also see in designing a vector you'd want something that only has one site. So what we would have achieved from this conceptually is we've now got this, this is the vector with its origin of replication here, and let's say ampicillin resistance, for example, as a selectable marker. The gene for that could be encoded here. And we have the, the fragment of, um, if you want to put that down on the, just put it down on the floor. I think we've made the point <laughs> at this stage, thanks. Um, what one has to do is to join this piece of DNA to that. And we'll go through the molecular uh, details of this, um, but we'll join the fragment to the vector. And actually, this was something that was already in molecular biologists' toolkits had been studying DNA replication. That's DNA ligase. When we finish an Okazaki fragment, we had to seal NICs and the, the enzyme that did that is an enzyme called DNA ligase. So molecular biologists basically had the scotch tape or the glue to join stuff back together. What they were missing for many, many years were the sequence-specific molecular scissors. So at this stage, if we were doing recombinant DNA, we now have a vector. We now have a piece of DNA joined to it. In fact, we probably have a whole other mess of things that happened along the way. But uh, at the moment, they're in a test tube. So if we want to have this thing grow, what do we have to do next then? We're going to have to get the DNA from outside the cell, inside the cell. That's the word we need to transform the DNA into a cell. Again, the word transform. That goes back to those transformation experiments with the streptococcus pneumoniae going from smooth to rough. And you were taking stuff from the cell that transformed them from rough, or rough to smooth, whatever. That's where the word came from. But we now know it's getting naked DNA inside the cell where it can be replicated. And then the next thing we, know, we need to know is what cells have acquired this vector that has the... the at least has, has the vector, we'll settle for that at the beginning. And we can do that. You need to select for the marker on the vector. In the case of this one, we would, we would start with a strain that's killed by ampicillin, and then we just played out and asked for guys that are ampicillin res resistant. And uh, you can see there's another class of problem, because if we had uncut vector, and there would probably be for sure some of that in our mix. That would make the cells ampicillin. And if we had an insert, it would also be ampicillin. So if we really wanted to get into this, we'd have to do some more work to sort out what's on there. But that's, I mean, that's the basic stuff. I suspect most of you know this practically 
since kindergarten. But that's the overall framework into which now I'm going to start layering different pieces of, um, of detail. And the, the next part, again, some of you may know, I don't think it will be a f totally foreign concept. You're probably familiar with this, that what, what, what are these restriction enzymes, what their actual word is a restriction endonuclease, They're often usually just called restriction enzymes in lab parlance. Nuclease is something that cuts a nucleic acid, and endonuclease is one that doesn't need a free end, so it can cut in the middle of a sequence instead of nibbling in from an end, which would make it, that would be an exonuclease. So these things have names that tend to be something like ECOR1, which has something to do with the where they're derived from. And um, uh, a typical one, one of the very first ones that use and still in really wide use is ECOR1. And this recognizes the sequence GAATTC. Now you'll notice that if you read the sequence in this way, it's the same sequence when you read it on the other strand. That's, it's called a palindrome, but be careful. We have palindromes in English, and those are words that if you read them from the front to the back, they're the same. But in, in an English letter, it uh, doesn't matter whether it's an A here or an A there, but you guys know something about DNA structure. There's a five to three prime polarity. So if you're reading this way, reading this way doesn't look at all the same, totally different. But reading on this strand, so you say if that was five, that's five to three, then the thing that's identical is the reciprocal sequence on the other side. So there is this, you see GAA and GAA, but it's not like the English word palindrome. So don't get yourself mixed up by that. Anyway, what this will then, uh, what this enzyme then does is it cuts just to the side here. It cuts symmetrically. And what it generates then is a G with a three prime hydroxyl. Remember the ribose, if we have, a, say, an A there, uh, this is the three prime position, and that's the five prime position of the sugar. So it leaves a three prime hydroxyl, and it also then leaves a five prime phosphate. So we'd have AATTC here. And then on the other side, we would get um, the, the reciprocal thing. So we'd have G with a three prime hydroxyl, and then uh, pull it over, AATT. C. So, like that. So now we've, we've got a break here. We can pull those apart. But this is one of the nice things you can see right from this is that we're generating uh, five prime single-stranded ends. And this one is the sequence AATTC. This is AATTC here. And these guys, if they could get together and line up as they were here, they'd be able to form hydrogen bonds. So if you take an, an enzyme like ECOR1, and we took, let's say, a circle that had a single GATTC, uh, ECOR1 site, GAATTC, if we cut it with the restriction enzyme, we would make NICs. And if we kept it cold, the NICs might even, all that we'd have was DNA 
nix. And if we warm things up a little bit, there's only four hydrogen bonds that are holding that together. So the thing would, would linearize and just flop around in the breeze. But if we cooled it slowly, the thermodynamically most favorable state, the lowest energy state, would be with those ends coming back together. So we could then add DNA ligase. If we lined these up and added DNA ligase, we could reverse the process. We go back and forth, eco R1 to cut it, DNA to ligate it. And then the beauty of recombinant DNA is this rejoining part doesn't see what's out here or what's out there. All it sees is the little ends that are joined by, uh, that are uh, generated by an ECOR1 site. So if I take some of my DNA, I'll cut it up, I'll get a zillion ECOR1 fragments, but they'll all have this same little overhanging bit that's complementary to the vector. So if I take a cut vector I've cut with ECOR1, and I take some of my own DNA and I mix them, I can get a little fragment get in between the vector, and it does exactly that joining that I was diagramming, diagramming right here. So again, that uh, that was the, the dis it was the discovery of these restriction enzymes that made possible all the, almost all the stuff that's happened in biology since 1975. That was a, the the development of restriction enzymes was essentially 75. I was a postdoc at Berkeley at that point, and uh, the lab. The labs, Stan Cohen at Stanford, Herb Boyer at UCSF, and a couple of other, a few others around the group, around the uh, country were working on this. They were almost all labs that had worked on pla bacterial plasmids. And plasmids are little circles of DNA. So the labs that started were ones who'd been busy studying little circles of DNA that usually carried drug resistances between cells. And so uh, that was happening while I was a postdoc. And when I got to MIT in 76, the technology was just beginning. I was one of the first labs trying to cut pieces of DNA and join them back together. So it's a pretty recent development. At that point, DNA sequencing hadn't been invented. The idea you could pull out a piece of DNA and do something with it or produce a protein was just I thought it didn't, it didn't exist. So it's hard to overemphasize how critical the, discussion, the discovery of these restriction enzymes were. Now, the one thing, I just want to tell you where they came from, or how people found them. And I'll try and do this quickly, because you know, some of you get a little impatient with history. But um, this is really important, because it's very easy to make fun of basic research. You can ridicule anything uh, pretty easily. And you might just ask, as I'm telling you this story, if somebody proposed doing this, I'm going to tell you the experiment that basically is the basis of the biotech industry. And would you have been smart enough to recognize it? The it was the discovery of a phenomenon called restriction, restriction of bacterial phage growth on bacteria. And it was, um, let's see here. Here are actually a couple of EMs of these little plasmids. I just, this is an electron micrograph, one of these little circles that's been shadowed. And this is actually artificially colored. But you know, that was the kind of plasmids that people were cutting up. So you know, as I said, trying to get through this DNA and the stuff had what's made possible, the sequencing at the Whitehead Genome Center and stuff that I'll tell you about uh, is going on. I, I didn't really set this one up. But that's Eric Lander, who teaches 701 in the, uh, in the fall. I told you a picture from that DNA 50th. Well, they had a banquet that at the end of it, and I was there. This is uh, Savandi Pabo from Europe, who 
is sequencing the chimp genome. And uh, that's Francis Collins, who was headed the entire human genome project. This is Evelyn Witkin, who was a big discoverer of early DNA repair events. And I just I put that one in because it was sort of interesting. They they were Eric and Savanti and, and Francis were talking about what would happen when they knew the sequence of the chimp genome, which wasn't done. And there was an advertisement, uh, a poster advertising Jim Watson's latest book. And they ripped that in half and were writing all notes on the back all the way through dinner. So if you want to see what you know, scientists on the cutting edge, including someone who teaches 701 in the fall, looks like when they're not teaching 701, there's a picture. So anyway, the discovery of restriction enzymes with Salvador Luria, who I've mentioned. He was a member of the biology department of one of our Nobel Prize winners. He started the Cancer Center. He also trained Jim Watson. When I showed you that picture, there was, this is Salva standing over here, a bit younger. A few of you, another thing that Salva did, he was a Nobel Prize winner, but he taught introductory biology. So I am basically following in the footsteps of Salva, he wrote a book called, even though he's a Nobel Prize winner, a book called 36 Lectures in Introductory Biology. And at some, some universities, intro biology is taught by who's ever at the bottom of the food chain. The, the newest, most junior professor gets stuck with intro biology, and here it's the other way. I mean, getting Eric and Bob, for example, Boinberg to teach in the in this fall tells you that. Um, and really where that comes from is the fact that Salvador Luria had such an interest in replication. So he trained Jim Watson. He started the cancer center. He started here. And, Jim, and he also carried out this um, phenomenon of restriction. And he did this working with bacteriophage. And I know a couple of you wrote you didn't like to see old guys on porches. So I got freaked out. And I took this next picture out. But this morning, I, oh, I've got to show it anyway for two reasons. This is Salva sitting on a porch at Cold Spring Harbor with Max Delbrook, who started really much of the work on bacteriophage that gave us the underpinnings for molecular biology. And I put it partly on, A, because it shows the informality of the molecular biology culture, which persists to this day, and also because Salva had such an impish sense of humor. You would have really enjoyed had he been teaching this course. But anyway, Salva was studying just bacteriophage. Remember we talked about them? They're basically a syringe. They inject their day. DNA into the cell. There's an electron micrograph. I'm not making it up there. <laughs> the DNA is up top there. It goes in. And uh, then the DNA takes over the cell, reprograms it, makes baby phage. And I showed you how we make plaques. So that was what Salva was studying. And it's a little like um, what we were talking about with Mendel. He didn't have very many techniques available to him at the time. He couldn't sequence DNA. He couldn't do a lot of things. But he could plate phage and count, things like that. And what uh, Salva was looking at, he, he, had, uh, he had a bacteriophage, and he had two strains of bacteria, I'll call them A and B. Okay, here comes the experiment that founded the biotech industry. You ready? You going to fund me? All right, so what I propose doing is I'm going to grow the the phage on strain A, and now I'm going to plate on strain A and strain B. I lay awake all last week thinking of this experiment. So what I get, I get a lot of plaques on strain A, probably 
something like 10 to the 9th or 10 to the 10th per mil, because that's what a phage lysate usually looks like once you've grown them up. And if I plate them over on strain B, no phage, maybe an occasional phage. So obviously, the bacteriophage can grow fine on strain A. It can't grow on strain B most of the time, but some variant has managed to figure out how to grow on strain B. Given our uh, foray in genetics, I think many of you would think, probably as I suspect Salva did at the time, the thing's mutated. It's learned, it's made some change in its genome that's allowed it to grow on strain B. So I wonder if it learned to grow on strain B, could it grow on, uh, still grow on strain A? So basically what he took was the phage from that, uh, from that uh, experiment and then he plated them on strain A and strain B. And, well, as you might guess, since it was growing in strain B, lots of plaques. And there were lots of plaques over here. Okay, so it didn't forget how to grow on strain A. So, better check over here, too. Need a control experiment, so take this guy, plate it out. A, strain B, lots of plaques over here. That's not a surprise of going in strain A. We're back to where we started from. Doesn't sound like a mutant, does it? If it was a mutant, everybody should have been the same. Instead, it looked like the cell, the, when you grew a phage on strain A, it, it it didn't have the ability to grow on strain B. But if you gave it a chance to grow on strain B, most of them wouldn't make it. But if it ever did, it had now acquired the ability to grow on, on strain B. So it could still could grow on both. But if you took somebody who'd been growing on, uh, on uh, something had been growing on strain A, it, it, it lost it. And so, um, the idea there was then that it wasn't a mutation. Something was happening in the, um, in the, in the strain B that enabled it to grow in strain B, and if it ever got away from that environment, it lost it. So the phenomenon was called restriction. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mutation. It was something else. And it turned out then that the restriction... is due to an enzyme. An example of this kind of thing, then, would be this EcoR1 uh, activity that's able to cut at a very specific sequence. Now, if you were going to have a set of molecular scissors inside of you that could cut a GATC sequences, you'd have a problem unless you did something else, because every one of your GA um, GATC sequences would be cut by the uh, would be cut by the restriction enzymes. So, what their the cells that have a restriction enzyme have is a modification enzyme that recognizes 
the same sequence and then modifies it in some way that makes it resistant to the um, uh, makes it resistant to the um, restriction enzyme. And in the case of the uh, EcoR1, it puts on a methyl group on this A. You might have thought that that would interfere with base pairing, but it doesn't because adenine looks like um, like this. These are the guys that do the base pair with thymine, if you look back. And you'll see that the, the methyl group, you could put a methyl group in there. It wouldn't interfere with the, with the base pairing, but it would allow this to go. So that was, it was this discovery of this phenomenon of restriction, that a bacteriophage grew on one strain, not on another, could learn to grow on the other strain, could lose that acquisition. It was that phenomenon that people, they didn't have any reason other than it was an interesting problem in biology to understand it. Once they understood the basis of it, just a whole new world opened up because you could see from basic principles. Now I could cut any piece of DNA. I could generate these little overhanging sticky ends. I could take a plasmid. People knew about those. I could find one that only has one restriction site. I could stick things in. Now I've attached an origin or replication to each of those pieces and I'm in business. I can now, for the first time ever, take a particular piece of DNA and make as many copies as I want. And that was an absolute uh, transformation to the way people were able to think about biology. So I'm going to just kind of give you an idea of how people would start. So the, the way people began and still began most things is they call it the usual term, as you call, constructing a recombinant DNA library. And there are a variety of different um, uh, uh, ways of doing this, but this, the principle is, is the same. We take D the DNA from whatever organism you're interested in in cutting and in studying. And we cut with some restriction enzyme. And this restriction enzyme will cut wherever the there happen to be um, sites, they might be close together, they might be far apart, but whatever, they'll generate some characteristic set of fragments and we'll now have, in this case, like fragment number one, fragment number two, fragment number three, fragment number four, and so on, and if it's my DNA, there's a lot of fragments and of course they're all mixed up, I can't tell where any of them are. They're just all mixed together in the test tube. And then we'll take that vector that we've opened, and now we'll mix all of these fragments together with this vector. And now we'll, and then we join it just the way we've sky. And now what we'll get is a collection of plasmids that have different inserts. 
So one of the plasmids will have that fragment number one. Another one of them will have fragment number two, number three, so on. Then this whole thing is what's known as a library. And you can see if it's someone, with, if it's DNA from me, there were three billion base pairs to start. You, given the, in human DNA, GATC sequences are pretty common. You can calculate the frequency yourself for how many sites on average there would be for a restriction enzyme within a piece of DNA and figure out roughly how many fragments there would be in a library of human DNA. So we're partway there. We can now uh, make a library. We can make it from bacterial DNA. We can make it from human DNA. Um, but the next thing that people had to learn how to do was to figure out how to find a particular fragment that had the gene that you were interested in. And there's a whole variety of things. I mean, ultimately today, since the human genome is sequenced, you go onto the computer and, <laughs> and you type and you find it because the sequence is all known. But the only reason we can do that is because of all the work that was done in between. So I'll give you a, a several ways of doing this, but one of the ways I think you can see very easily, and it, it's actually going back to the term complementation. Remember complementation? We had something that was mutant, and then we put in a wild-type gene, and it fixed it up again. So for example, suppose I was studying histidine biosynthesis in E. coli, and I wanted to find the gene that uh, encoded the the uh, enzyme that I had just disabled in my, in my histidine minus mutant. So if I have a his oxytroph, let's call it, a, I'll call it a his G gene, for example. That's one of the genes involved in making histidine. So um, since it's a histidine oxytroph, if I have it on just minimal glucose plates and I streak it out, it's not going to grow. Um, but if I grow it on minimal glucose plus histidine, then it will be able to grow, right? So I've got a variant of this organism. It's got a single mutation in it. It's affecting one gene. And because I don't know that gene, I can't grow in minimal. If I made a library of E. coli DNA, which is going to have a lot of fragments as well, and I took that library and I put it into this mutant, I'm going to get a big mess of things, all the different plasmids with all the different fragments that go into that mutant. How am I going to find the one that I want? Anybody see that? It's not that hard. I can't grow on, I'm the mutant, I can't grow on minimal because I can't make this enzyme, therefore I can't make histidine. What do I need? How could you fix me up if you were a doctor? What's the gene we want out of here? The one that makes that, that particular enzyme that makes histidine. And yeah, take the whole library, stick it in this mutant. If, if the gene coming in has, encodes DNA polymerase, not going to help this guy. It still won't grow in minimal. Take a gene involved in making part of the cell wall, it won't help. But if I put in the, I get a fragment of DNA 
that includes the HIST-G plus gene, and I put it in here, it's going to grow up if it has the plasmid that has, or let's say the vector that has the HIST-G plus gene. So what you've done is a really sort of, you've used that principle of complementation, which some of you were sort of wondering about when we were doing genetics. So you break a copy of a gene, and in, our, in, in the things we talked about, we bring in a whole chromosome that included in it just the wild-type copy of the gene. With recombinant DNA, we can really narrow it down. In, in, in the extreme, we can bring in a piece of DNA that is only the gene that's broken, and we can take the gene back to the wild-type. But one thing, just to close, you'll see, if you remember back when I talked about languages that are not universal, although the genetic code is universal, promoters and things are not. So I couldn't ever do this with the human DNA, could I? Because it wouldn't get expressed. So we need some other ways of finding those. We'll talk about those on next lecture. Okay?